Hi, it's Deborah Rathwell, and I'm going to be at AIBA on Promoter 101. Welcome one and all to the Promoter 101 podcast. This is the 197th chapter of our podcast, and we have a very special co-host from Live Nation Southern Cali. Rich Best is with us. Rich, do you consider yourself from Minneapolis or in Los Angeles at this point? What's home in your head? Man, that's a tough one. Born and raised Minneapolis, home, now Los Angeles. So in your head, when you think about it and you claim home, you claim Los Angeles, but your heart's still in Mini. My heart's still in Mini. Yep. Excited to have you back on the podcast, man. It's thrilling coming off of a festival with Eddie Vedder last week. Yeah, man. We just finished our fourth year of the Ohana Festival, partnered with Eddie Vedder, and it was pretty magical. I mean, we couldn't be busier as we come out of that. I mean, we're just tons of shows left in the rest of the year. I mean, a bunch of Jonas Brothers, some Who's, some Slayers, some Ariana Grandes. I mean, it's nonstop until probably mid-December. Well, I'm super excited about the Who at the Hollywood Bowl. It's going to be my first show at the Hollywood Bowl. I'm very excited about this. It doesn't get any more iconic venue than that. I mean, if you're going to see the Who, that's where you probably want to see it. Speaking of iconic, this week's podcast has a very iconic industry name on it. Tell us about that, Rich. It sure does. The Masterclass Sessions roll on with iconic promoter and manager Randy Phillips. We're going to take a deep dive into his historic career. He's a pretty famous guy in our industry. Yes, he is. We also have a war story from Green Machine Concerts, Jim Green. What are you excited about that's coming up? You mentioned the Jonas Brothers. What else is coming down the strip for you? Literally, we have Slayer's last date they will ever play. Coming out, we have two nights at the Forum. These are the last two shows that they will play. So, you know, what's not to love about fucking Slayer? After that, it's just, I mean, we are in full-on buy mode for 2020. Episode 197 starts right now. Hey, what's going on? This is Bubbles. This is Julian. And this is Ricky. You're listening to Promoter 101. <laughs> Maybe you've missed some of the past Promoter 101 episodes. Well, lucky for you, we've got them all saved at Promoter101.net. This week, we've got episode 114 dished up for you as a special reissue. That episode features Concert West, AEG Presents, Amy Morrison, fresh off rolling out of the Rolling Stones Stadium Tour. Plus, ICM partners Rick Farrell on a very personal one-on-one interview about his relationship, a man and his mustache. It's quite the mustache, Rick Farrell. Plus, SMG Tolls says Joe Giordano Jr. turns the tables on me. So if you got a free minute, please drop us a review or subscribe to the Promoter 101 podcast and tell a friend. Hey, this is Bill Silva from Bill Silva Entertainment. You are listening to Promoter 101. News of the week. Mr. Luke Pierce, don't hold back. What, what, what is the news of the week? It's time for news of the week. It's earnings season, so you know we're going to talk about it. And the big thing and the big headline that we're taking away this week is the growth of the recorded music business. 
This on the backs of the figures announced by Vivendi, the parent company of Universal Music Group. Vivendi announcing this week that UMG's third quarter 2019 revenues were up 16% to $2 billion U.S. over the same period in 2018. Their year-to-date revenues were $5.7 billion, a 17.5 increase in the same period of 2018. It's a similar tune to many of the previous earnings seasons. Q3 recorded revenues were up 13%, with streaming increasing almost 20% to 936 million. Physical sales also increased nearly 15% to 257 million, with digital sales declining 11.5% to 1121 million. Publishing and licensing saw modest single-digit percentage increases, and the brilliant highlight was UMG's merchandise. Revenues were growing 82% from 85 million in 2018 to 152 million in the same quarter over quarter, 2018 to 2019. The exec team at Vivendi also took a moment to address investors about the sale of a stake in Universal Music Group, revealing that the due diligence on Tencent Holdings' bid to acquire 10 to 20% of UMG would be completed in the next few weeks. Vivendi reported that Tencent's bid comprises a strategic investment of 10% of the share of capital with an option to purchase an additional 10. News broke earlier this week that Pledge Music, the well-plagued crowdfunding platform had nearly $10 million in debts and assets totaling only $25,000, leaving little prospect that artists and creditors will be paid. Founder and former CEO Benji Rogers' interview with a court-appointed receiver makes up a bulk of the report on the demise of Pled Music, which is available on Hypebot. Rogers had returned to the company twice and failed attempts to save the music crowdfunder. Rogers said, and I quote, this is a devastating news for every artist affected. I can't believe that they are left without what was owed to them. I am so sorry I was not able to do more. Finally, ending with more financial news. Twitter's stock plunged nearly 20% this morning, the largest single-day loss since going public six years ago. Bugs in Twitter's advertising technology dragged on revenue, overshadowing a surprising strong quarter of user growth in this quarter. The San Francisco-based company said it's addressing those issues, but likely will weigh on advertising businesses in the near term, and they lowered its outlook for the fourth quarter and for the entire year. According to Ned Siegel, the chief financial officer, these bugs affected our ability to target ads and share data and measurement with ad partners. We also discovered that certain personalization and data settings were not operating as expected. These issues were in our control, and we will work to do better. Despite the bugs, there were positive trends in usage on Twitter, with daily active users jumping 17% to 145 million, 3 million more than what was industry expected. Revenue was 824 million, an increase of 9% over the same period last year, but well short of the 874 million projected by Wall Street. Debt income was 37 million or 5 cents a share, and removing non recurring charges, the per share profit was 17 cents, 3 cents shy of expectations by Wall Street. That'll do it for News of the Week. This is Andrea Johnson from ICM Partners, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Up next, the war story with Green Machine Concerts, Jim Green. We've got an absolute legend, icon, and character from the South. Join us today on Promoter 101, Mr. Jim Green. Jim, welcome to the show. Dan, how are you, sir? I'm just so excited that we get to have you on the podcast and we get a little wisdom. Now, I know you got a lot of stories and there is just one that I love so much because you have special tools, special promoter tools that you use (laughs) as a promoter. I'm just going to leave that there and let you enlighten our listeners. Dan, I started in the business years ago at the New Daisy Theater, working for a club owner there who started out in the boxing game as a boxing promoter. And he taught me a few tricks of the trade and he called it his negotiating tool. And he said, always be ready for a negotiation. I said, okay. 
So we did a show with an alternative band back in the 90s, and the lead singer was upset over the show and came upstairs and was mouthing off to the club owner. You know, and the club owner was a fiery Italian guy. He got up in his face and pushed him, and I saw the club owner grab his negotiating tool, which was a Louisville Slugger baseball bat, and chase him down the two flights of stairs and out of the building. And he came back upstairs and said, hey, always have your negotiating tool handy. So from that, I've always taken the advice of always have a negotiating tool handy. As you know, when you came to visit us a couple of years ago, we always keep a bat on the desk and a gun in the drawer, ready to negotiate at any time. Well, we had a much smoother negotiation on our dates than that, apparently, because I saw the tools in your arsenal, but it was more of an educational kind of thing rather than learning firsthand. No, 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 no. But we want everybody to understand that we love everyone and want everybody to come visit. But, you know, there are some house rules that we uh, live by. So always have a negotiating tool on your desk, you know, and one in the drawer if you need. I know you got a couple more great stories. Can you share one or two of your favorites with us? Aretha Franklin. As a youngster in his business back in the mid-90s, Aretha Franklin had not played Memphis since 72, and this was 1996, and I was in charge of paying the legend Aretha Franklin, and I was a kid who'd gone to work for Bob Kelly at Mid-South Concerts, and he said, whatever you do, make sure she gets on stage. I don't want any trouble. And in dealing with certain acts, certain acts required they be paid in advance in cash. So the day before the show, Bob Kelly calls me into his office and says, all right, here's the payment for tomorrow. Make sure she gets it. Her tour manager gets it before she goes on stage. I said, no problem. So he hands me 37500 in cash. At the time, that was more money than what I was making in a year. So uh, I was a little nervous with it. What do I do? I take it home. I take it with me everywhere. I actually slept with it in the bed that night and took it with me everywhere I went to the bathroom. Peek out of the shower curtain, making sure she'll sit on the counter over there, just a little paranoid. Got ready for the show, got up the next morning, get down to the venue early. I put it in the back of my car, and I catch myself every hour walking out to the car and opening up the trunk to make sure that it's still sitting there. You know, nothing's happened to it. So we get closer, the door's opening up, and it's about 5 o'clock, and I keep going back to the production office and asking their production guy, hey, uh, where's the tour manager? I need to settle up with him. You know, he said, hey, the tour manager will come see you when they're ready. That's about 5 o'clock or so. So here we are, 6.30, I'm knocking on the door again. Hey, you know, I'm ready to settle up with you guys. Can we settle up? And I was told, hey, the uh, tour manager will uh, come see you when they're ready. It's an 8 o'clock show, and I'm, I'm knocking on the door again at 7.15. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'd like to pay somebody. Can somebody square up with me? Hey, the tour manager will come see you before they go on. And I said, well, is she going to get on on time? Because my boss told me not to screw this up. And they're like, hey, the tour manager will come see you before the show starts. So here we are at 15 minutes till 8 o'clock. And I'm nervous. I'm like, I'm going to get fired because Aretha's not going to go on because she hadn't been paid. And here I am carrying around 37.5 in a backpack all afternoon, worried to death, trying to pay her. So I go sit back down in our production office by myself, wondering what to do. And there's a knock on the door. I get up and open the door, and there she is, Aretha Franklin herself. The queen! And I said, Miss Franklin? She said, you got something for me? I said, yes, ma'am. So we sat right down at the desk and counted 37500 in $100 bills. And she counted them in stacks, and she started sticking them in her bra. So I finally got her paid, and she went straight to the stage from there with 37.5 in her bra. I love that. Man, I can't thank you enough for making time and talking to us here on Promoter 101. Green Machine, Jim Green, live and in person right here on Promoter 101. Dan, thank you for everything. See you very soon. Jim Green and his world-famous promoter tool right here on Promoter 101. Bo Diddley once did a settlement at First Avenue where he came up so nice and he put his revolver on the desk and then just settled and then put it away and he left. Great show. 
Hey, it's Brian Penix with NS2 and ABI Management. I'm going to be on Promoter 101. Promoter 101 Flashbacks. Episode 23. Rick Greenstein. We have a good sense. No one has a crystal ball, but we have a real good sense. And, you know, there are times when it says get in early and invest right now. And it may not mean a lot of tickets and no one may get rich off this run or this given date. But, you know, my track record and the agency's track record are, are pretty good of spotting talent early and vesting. You know, but at the same point, we don't normally bring promoters in until we're at that place where we're ready to do these one-nighters and start moving some tickets. There are the soft dates and the, the clubs and the colleges and the other stuff that we can develop these acts. And we kind of, as I call it, read the tea leaves. You know, I can get a sense, especially when we're taking an act that we've been able to cultivate in the comedy clubs in North America and then take it to the theaters. You can read the tea leaves when a guy is, or a lady is moving tickets in a certain fashion and hitting all the bonuses and selling out the rooms and you keep escalating the price where you know you've hit the ceiling and you know it's time to cross over into the hard tickets. And then how do you do it? And normally speaking, with the acts that we've had that opportunity here, we don't come prematurely. We come when we know we're there. That sounds weird. <laughs> okay, there's a couple of them too. But what's really interesting about the acts jumping from clubs to theaters is the acts, when they're selling at the clubs, they're playing multiples usually in a weekend. And they're making way more in the clubs because they get pretty much the entire door. And when they jump to theaters, they're hard ticket, hard expense events shows. So they're making usually less money because they have to carry the weight of that all by themselves. There's no built-in comedy club crowd. And all the expenses of marketing those shows and producing those shows go in the pot. So they literally have to invest in themselves when they step up from the clubs to the theater and give back money, essentially, or leave it on the table that they could continually safely take from the clubs. Well, usually at that transition point, there is a step back as far as how much you're going to take out of any given market at that time. So, yeah, if we have a comic that's spending an entire weekend in a city and making 20 grand and grossing 25 grand and walking out with, you know, 80, 85% of the, the door, and that same guy comes into a theater and makes 10 grand for one night in a 1,000 seat theater. He may take less out of the market. Now, on that given weekend, we can put two one-nighters together, and he's not making less money, per se, given on a weekend or in a given month or given year. But, but he's he taking take, less in the market. He's taking less in the market, but it's only that temporary step back. Look, there are hard costs to go into a theater, as we all know. But there's also the perception you're no longer a club act, you're now a theater act. The cachet. A cachet. And you, you, that one step, if it goes as planned, that one step only happens once. Because if your business is growing and you're in the right trajectory, then the next time you're in a bigger venue, you can charge higher ticket prices. And then that one-nighter will represent more than you can make doing five or six shows in a comedy club and tying three nights up. And so that's hopefully what you've got to do. But yeah, usually when you go to theaters... You have that one step where you may take a little bit less out of the market because you're not walking out with 80 or 85% of the door uh, or the, you know, the gross receipts. But, you know, that's generally what happens. But, of course, you got someone who's red hot on fire and it's just blowing right through everything. Then, then all bets are off because then your one-nighter can be extremely lucrative and blow past what you can make in a club real easily. But it just depends on that trajectory. But that's a conversation I have with the artists and the managers at that time is, look, it is worth going that market, play the 1200 seat theater and you'll make X, but you're doing it in one show as well. You know, granted, you can sell 1800 seats in a comedy club and do six shows and make this, but one show you sell out 12 and now you're a concert act. Plus we can escalate your ticket prices and it's the right step on building your brand. But you have to invest in yourself, as you said, and part of that is going to the theater and incurring those costs to do so. 
This is Karen from 10 Club Ticketing, and I'm on Promoter 101. Tweets of the Week. I hope you're ready, because it's time for Tweets of the Week. When you bump into a very green promoter at the airport, and they want you to answer every question about the biz, even before coffee. Dude, let a brother wake the fuck up first. Have a heart. I think this is ironic, because I bet I did this to you once upon a time. (laughs) You're funny. When someone cold calls you on a Saturday and tells you they are a legend in the music business, but have no idea what a hard ticket means. I love when people call themselves legend or iconic. This is something so awesome, like, you know, a car salesman saying they can be trusted. When an act you have deep history with cuts you out and the entire tour stiff. <laughs> this karma is just awesome on that stuff. Has that ever happened to you, Rich? Yes. Yes, indeed. I'm a sore loser. <laughs> I'll just say that. That'll just about do it for Tweets of the Week. You can follow up on Twitter at the Jew. We are thrilled to announce that Promoter 101 has teamed up with the Recording Academy's Music Cares Foundation to do a little good. And you, our beloved listeners, can help by going to Promoter101.net and clicking the Merch tab at the top of the page. You can pick up a stylish, limited edition Promoter 101 Call Your Mother t-shirt or hoodie in a huge variety of styles and colors. 100% of proceeds goes directly to Music Cares and their mission to provide a safety net of critical assistance for music people in their time of need. Shipping and handling is absolutely free, and for the first $10,000 we raise, our good friends at Prism are matching donations dollar for dollar. Go to Promoter101.net right now, click on the merch tab, pick out one of our awesome shirts, and be the heart and soul of the music community by donating to Music Cares. And don't forget to call your mother. Established in 2016, Promoter 101 and its illustrious founding fathers, Sir Daniel Steiny Steinberg and the one and only W. Lucas Pierce, have fermented like the finest of wines. And after almost three years of bringing you only the most exquisite, educational, and thought-provoking interviews, it is with great pleasure that we bestow unto you the Promoter 101 Masterclass Sessions. Masterclass. In our feature masterclass session, we have an industry legend from managing some of the biggest pop acts in the world to guiding some of the biggest companies in the industry. Randy Phillips is here and he's not holding back anything. Randy Phillips, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dan. The history of you and the business is the parallel of the industry. You've had a long industry with rock and roll from the early days. How did you find your way to music? Actually, I started when I was in college. I wanted to go to medical school, son of Jewish parents and the whole thing. And I had to overachieve. And I'm a type A personality. Well, I was going to Brandeis University outside of Boston. I was in a operation. I was working as an orderly in a hospital and there was a gallbladder operation and I actually fainted at the sight of blood, which is kind of odd when you think of the business I ended up and how bloody it is. Okay. Being a doctor might not have been for you if the sight of blood. So I called my mom and I said, mom, I've got good and bad news. Bad news is I can't be a doctor. Good news is I'll go to law school. And so I finished up at Stanford. I went to law school up in Northern California. I actually finished down here at Loyola University part-time because I was managing Metal Arc Lemon of the Harlem Globetrotters at the time. Wow. My actual start, though, was at Stanford. I became the director of special events, and I ended up turning it into a big concert program. I did all these really cool acts like Boz Skaggs and Lydia Pence and Coldblood, and all of those Bay Area uh, rock acts. I did Crosby, Stills, and Nash, 
acts like that. And I turned Stanford into a, a real concert center. And we had some really great venues there at the time. And in fact, a side story, I booked Bob Marley and the Whalers for three nights at Frost Amphitheater, which was a 9,300-seat amphitheater outdoors in Stanford. And Bill Graham stole the act from me. So I sued him and impounded his box office. And he couldn't understand how a college student would actually have the balls to do that. the law. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I actually paid respects and went to his funeral. It was a tragedy the way he died in the helicopter crash and all that. But I went to the funeral and actually someone came up to me and said, did you just come to make sure? So anyway, that was my start. I mean, I was college talent buyer of the year in Billboard magazine while I was doing that. And that's how I got to know agents, managers, did Dan Fogelberg, the first manager I ever met was Irving Azoff way back in the day. I heard of him. Yeah, we all have. That was kind of my start. Came out of college. Billboard College Buyer of the Year. Now, I'm sure they've done away with it because I've not heard of it, but what a great idea. College buying was a lot bigger in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, as you go back earlier and earlier, because the industry got its start as dances, really. Correct. We called them mixers. Mixers. Yes. The big bands would play them, and those were the precursors to concerts for the most part, besides the fairs. Very true. And if you think about it, especially rock was so popular, the opposite of today. But for a rock band, a college tour was the greatest, you know, (laughs) and they ended up staying in the dorms, getting laid, doing all of that early rock stuff. A college tour was like the most fun. And it was amazing how sophisticated colleges got at buying talent and the positions and stuff like that. Eventually, they stopped using students like me to do it and actually brought in professionals because they had real venues. Sometimes right, the only guys venues. like Larry Maggot and Barry Fay got their chops working with the different colleges that they would book for them. And that they didn't have to take any risk. The no. schools would put up the social chairs would put up the money. They'd control the box office. They'd control the ticketing. You know, this was the beginning of Ticketmaster. And at that time, Ticketron, precursor to Ticketmaster, and roll tickets. So no one actually knew how much was really made and where all the money went in those days. It was the Wild West, you know. And they hadn't heard of tour accountants at the time. So it was a different time in the business. Speaking of different times... What you're probably most well-known for is developing the competitor to SFX. You built out AEG. Mm -hmm. Now, you've been gone from the company for several years, but you really developed what was a fairly small touring entity into a global competitor. Properties, venues, you had come in and really figured that out. And to take on, after SFX had done the roll-up, and build that out and make an actual competitor that could compete globally, nobody actually thought it was possible. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, I look at AEG now. I termed it AEG Live originally, and I wrote a 33-page business plan that actually got me hired. If you want, I'll go back to the beginning of that. There was a great, great guy, and he's still great, running AEG. He was the CEO of AEG. It was Phil Anschutz's money, but AEG was Tim Lewicki's vision. You know, Tim now has Oakview and stuff like that. Brilliant executive and kind of like my mentor, even though he was younger than me by a couple of years at the time. He's just in my end of that level. Yeah, but he backed me on everything I did. And not having to look over my shoulder and worrying about politics made it easier for me to succeed. And what AEG Presents looks like today is a carbon copy of the business plan I submitted which must be now 17, 18 years ago. It looks exactly the same. And what I did 
is touring is great, but touring, these are leases. You get a tour for a certain amount of time. You have very rarely do you have rights that go beyond or transcend the tour you're doing. It's cash flow and it's important for your venue business. But it's not thing like having venues. Like the fellow you interviewed before me, Rick Mueller, he runs the venue side. I hired him and Brian Murphy when I was still the CEO of AEG Live. And that venue business, what people do not realize, when they look back at the beginnings of AEG Live, they think about all the tours I did, whether it was Tom Petty, Bon Jovi, or Justin Timberlake, or Justin Bieber, Christine Aguilera, Enrique Iglesias, all of those tours, the inheritance of the Stones and what that's meant to the company, and Bieber, the multi-year contract. These are the things I left when I left AEG, and the company has grown since then. And Jay Marciano's done a really good job of running the company. You were also hired. Yes, yes, I did. And I also let him go to Madison Square Garden. But you brought him back. You sent him to Europe, right? Yes, yes. Big proponent of his. And I like to see people succeed. I think it's good for everybody when people have success. With Live Nation, which was SFX, then it became Clear Channel when I was building AEG. What people don't realize in the beginning, because Phil Anschutz was kind of a right-wing conservative, at least that's how he was known, I found him. Even though I'm a liberal Democrat, I always enjoyed my conversations and my debates with him about politics. And he's one of those guys with all that money, he listens. He just doesn't hear the sound of his own voice. So I found it very interesting working for him. But in the industry, no one believed we would stay in the concert business which was really stupid if you think about it, especially at the agency level, they needed another buyer. Can you imagine what the price of talent would be today if AEG didn't exist? Well, as part of Live Nation, I really wish that had happened. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> but Dan, it would have been a whole paradigm shift. And because we succeeded, but I had to, in the beginning, I had to put up 100% of the money or a letters of credit. And think about that. I've got one of the richest men in America is the owner of the company. And I still had to do that. Now, eventually, after 100 Paul McCartney shows and all the things we did while I was there, we didn't have to anymore. And we could put 10% down when we signed a contract and stuff like that. But in the beginning, it was a hard sell that we would even stay in the business past the first year of my contract. Well, given the time and the things that were going on in the industry at that moment with the Ponzi scheme of Jack Utzik, some millionaire coming in, throwing around money that wasn't known in our industry, you could see how the agents might be worried a little bit. Yeah. And look, I will admit, I knew Jack was a scammer beyond belief. But for me, I used to sell him markets that I didn't want to do, but I had to take in a tour. I called him my pool protector. <laughs> It was insurance. Yeah, I actually missed him <laughs> when he got arrested or fled to Brazil or whatever. It was very good for a lot of people for a very long time. Yes, it was. Didn't help it in a bunch of other ways. No, no, no. Particularly as investors, I, but... Oh, that's unbelievable. Look at Lou Perlman. Lou Perlman out of Orlando had the two biggest boy bands of all time at the same time. Backstreet and NSYNC. NSYNC. Why did he have to start that airplane charter company that was a scam and a fraud where there are no planes? and bilk investors out of $300 million when he had two of the biggest groups in the world. And if he had played his card rights, he'd still be managing Justin now. He didn't need anything else. And that's crazy. It didn't make sense to me. I mean, album sales were enough on that that you wouldn't need Justin now. You could have lived off those album sales of those two acts. But, but Dan, he also cheated the acts. I hear this, I think it's on Netflix or Amazon, this thing that Lance Bass did, this 
documentary about yeah, him. Yeah, tell all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to see it. Yeah, it's amazing where they need the money, why they need the money. Because, you know, you could really, in this world, live fairly reasonably for very little money if you play your cards right. And he had a lot of money. Yeah, I'll never understand that kind of greed. But for me, starting AEG, that's kind of a resume for me that's really served me well throughout my career till now. Because at the end of the day, I have a lot of respect from a lot of people in the business. Because the truth is, if I hadn't persevered and been that kind of type A personality that wouldn't take no for an answer, there would only be one buyer. It would be your parent company, which is not healthy for any business. And I'm doing the Jennifer Lopez tour with Live Nation now, and I love working with them. They do a great job, but it's never good for the, to only be one buyer for an entire industry. We've known each other for a long time, and I remember one of our first conversations at a Polestar bar. Mm -hmm. You and me talking about understanding global business and your plans for the UK or we're opening, or you'd already had at least shovels in the ground. Mm -hmm. And it's talking about how to have an international vision and how you build into that. And get on an airplane and walk around. You got to go explore the world. You got to get out. You can't think about playing in another market till you've seen it. Well, I had the benefit before I went to AEG of managing Rod Stewart and his comeback with Arnold Stiefel right. at Stiefel Phillips Entertainment. Remember, I was a talent manager. Mm -hmm. That was my background. Use that law history. Yeah, yeah. But that was my background. And one of the good things about managing Rod, he was at the time... Even though he was a big star and everyone knew who he was, and you know, if you think rock star, you think him or you think Mick Jagger and with the hair and the whole thing, image wise. But Rod was kind of cold as Kelsey's nuts, as they say, <laughs> in North America. But he was huge internationally. And remember, he was one of the first artists that ever did videos, that actually had videos. That's why he was, he was so popular on MTV. That's what helped break him again in North America. Because they had to play his videos over and over again because they didn't have enough programming. Right, they didn't have enough content yet. Exactly. Nobody could afford to make videos. Exactly. But my background with Rod, touring the world with him, because we toured together, that taught me a lot about the world that I didn't know before I took the job at AEG. And then when I did the business plan, it was always, touring was always important because they had already bought as a boutique company, Concerts West, which was John Meglin and Paul Gongaware before I got there. Then when I was there, we went and we bought half of Coachella and 100% of Golden Voice. And I turned Golden Voice into the Southern California concert company. I didn't call it AEG Live Southern California because Golden Voice had brand value to the consumer. Yeah, they're fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. And it had that. So if it ain't broke, why fix it? So I kept that name and I kept that branding. And then, of course, Coachella, which people don't realize, hemorrhaged millions, tens of millions of dollars from 1999 to 2008. We kept it alive because, thank God, Phil had such deep pockets and he believed in it. I believed in it. We all really did in Tim. And Coachella turned the corner in 2009 and started to make money, as did Stagecoach. But when the economy tanked, that was our worst year. That one year, I believe by memory, we lost 12 on Coachella and another five or six on Stagecoach. We lost $18 million that year. You know, but people don't realize that because it's such a juggernaut and such a cultural event today that they don't realize how these things start and how much staying power you need to have to be in the game. So when you see a moment like Beyonce drop an album recorded there and a live concert video, and it stopped the world for a week mm -hmm. and everyone talking about how amazing this was. 
this one cultural moment that came from something that you had to do, you were involved with developing. The show last year, you're not there anymore, but it wouldn't have happened without you guys staying the course and developing it together. It's got to have an impact when you see something that have that big of a splash internationally, socially, that big of a level. Coachella will always be, for me, my baby. I'll always be proud of it. I didn't go this year because it fell on Passover. And then I was in New York the week before, so I couldn't go. They need to do a third weekend so you can yeah, go. Yeah, and I didn't, I didn't quite get the lineup this year. I thought the curation was odd, although I know that Kanye dropped out of a headlining yeah. position and Justin Timberlake dropped out. So Paul Tillette had to really scramble to put it together. But yeah, I've seen most of the big performances there. And I remember, this is very interesting, in 2006, Paul T. and I had a battle over, there was an agent at CAA, Jeff Rasco, and he wanted to keep Kanye as a client. And in order to do that, he had to deliver Coachella. And they did not have hip hop at Coachella at that time. And I wanted to deliver for Jeff because he did so much business with us. We did the American Idol tours with him and stuff like that. So Paul T and I like had a battle and finally he just let me, okay, you can have Kanye, you could be like third act on, this was <laughs> I think 2006. And it's interesting when I think about Kanye then and what hip hop means to that festival and to the whole festival circuit. When you look at Kendrick Lamar, you look at Travis Scott. I mean, these are really important festival headliners today when they couldn't get arrested 10 years ago. Now, ironically, you could look like a pioneer if you told that story differently, but you admitted it was politics. You were doing a solid yeah, for yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> I, no, my, my biggest problem is I'm honest. <laughs> okay. So of the things that you did while you were there, you were able to cut a deal with Louis Messina to bring him in as a touring partner. You were able to cut a deal also with... The Marshall guys with McCartney and Pink. Correct. Stuart Galbraith as well. When you guys mm -hmm. opened in the UK, you guys had teamed up with Kilimanjaro to make sure that you had the content in O2. So really great strategic partners to make sure that you had the content. Yeah. Well, you know, a company is only as good as the people in it. You know, you'll say AG presents. That wouldn't mean anything if they didn't have great partners underneath that banner. And if you think about it now, the Messina Group deal was probably the best deal I did because Louis today, his touring roster is beyond anything. It's what really keeps AEG competitive with Live Nation is Louis. Taylor Swift, Kenny Chesney, George Strait, Eric Church, Ed Sheeran, and now Sean Mendez. He's got a couple things up his sleeve. Nobody uses a bus better than him after a show, a bus and a bottle of tequila. There's no one better than Louis at that with yeah, an artist. He's got the hang down. And he's made a career. He's brilliant. He's taking that support slot and turned it into his next headline. Yeah, it's farm league. Yeah. The guy's a genius. Yeah. But he, if you look at AEG, I mean, they have some really good things like Rick was talking about. Rick Mueller. Mueller. He was talking about the Panic at the Disco Tour. Okay. Great timing for that. You could feel that group was coming back. And it's been a while for them. But with Louie, he had so much content that it made everything else at AEG that much more important, whether it was their small cap venue business, the arenas, the whole thing. And it's hard. It's hard to deal, to compete against a Live Nation for the simple reason that, and I knew this, this is why Tim and I tried to stop it with the Justice Department. We were really doomed. Okay, I don't even know if today, if I was competing against Live Nation, if I could succeed, because they're dealing 
on a whole different set of economics than AEG does when they did the Ticketmaster merger, okay? Because they're dealing on a whole different P&L because it's very important for them to control ticketing, you know, when they renew with the buildings and stuff like that. So the more tours they have, the more content they have, the more important they become to the venues. And the venues are then very quick to re-sign with Ticketmaster. And that's one of the things that people don't realize. But if you look at the economics of Live Nation, your parent company, the stock's over $50 a share, which is insane. When Live Nation itself, the touring company, runs a deficit, but Ticketmaster is so powerful and so profitable that it makes up the difference, but you need both. One serves the other. It's a really symbiotic relationship, and that's why Live Nation's so healthy, and it's very hard to compete with them. I mean, when they bought the Jennifer Lopez tour, then I negotiated on behalf of Jen and Benny Medina, who's her manager and one of my closest friends. When I did that, they came in and just blew AEG out of the water with the offer they made. And it was very scary, you know, because I didn't want anyone to lose money and it wouldn't be good for her or her brand. But it worked out because the tour is a huge success. But AEG couldn't even compete with the offer they made. So... There's a couple things. Let's start with the AEG you built and the AEG today. You built what I like to consider the BMW profile of a company. Every act you guys were promoting between Concerts West and Louis and AEG Touring were marquee names. They were very cool. There was a very high, high value in everything that you guys had put your brand on, and that had raised your brand. Mm-hmm. Correct. You didn't have the amphitheater, so you didn't have to do volume of everything. Right. And didn't have to worry about the infrastructure because you weren't the same size company. But the stuff was amazing. The Stings tours and the Eagles, just very cool, high end across the board. Timberlake. Vegas. Absolutely. Everything you guys did had that. When you did the O2 and you did the 50 shows with Michael and the concert video, it's like sold out and like, forget what happened. Those are fluke things, right? But you nailed it. You sold it. What a high end thing. Michael Jackson, 50 shows in one venue. How fucking cool is that? The things that you guys were working on, the brand was so high. Was that intentional? We want to do the highest end things and we don't want to mess with anything else. We just want the best for our brand. Well, at the time, we didn't have as many small cap venues or clubs as SFX or Clear Channel mm-hmm. Entertainment had at the time. So we didn't have a farm team to break acts and develop them. So the only thing I could do is go after headliners. But people don't realize, I started AG Live's touring company, Meglin Gonga, where we were all shoulder to shoulder and doing this. But I started that with Britney Spears. I convinced David Zedek and Johnny Wright to let us do Britney Spears when she exploded. And that's what made that company happen. They had a hard time, even with Phil's checkbook and enormous wealth, they had a hard time competing and booking acts. There was a gentleman named Bruce Cap at the time and Brad Wavra, who's still there. They were great bookers. And AEG was struggling. It was really, okay, David Zedek, and Johnny Wright giving us Britney Spears that started that company. And then we took it from there. I booked McCartney, Tom Petty, and then there was no going back. But as far as marquee talent, I love stars. I did, you know, as a manager, I loved stars. I had Prince, I had Rod Stewart. I found Guns N' Roses. To me, a star is someone who walks into a room and fills it with their presence. 
or someone who's on the stage and you can't take your eyes off of them to even go to the bathroom. That to me is compelling and I love that business. And that's kind of was reflected in the types of marquee acts talent we did and promoted at AEG. And also remember, we were in the arena business in the beginning. We had Staples Center, we were building the O2, we had Kansas City. So we were protecting ourselves from SFX and Clear Channel, trying to book around our buildings by bidding on tours too. It was a defensive mechanism to protect our core real estate business. The idea of being able to play at that game and build what you guys did, and you were doing stadium tours, you had the ability to promote at any level, but the marquee was amazing. Anything AEG touched was cool. Now, just based on volume and how they've grown in every direction, feels a little bit more like it's not so much about the brand, it's about business now. Well, the reality is a business reflects people who are running it. And I've always been a taste guy, you know, and if I didn't really like something or, or understand it, it was hard for me to do that business or know how to make it successful. And I'm not always right. And I wasn't always right. And there's things I lost because I was so picky. But that's kind of who I am, whether it's art, I'm art rich and cash poor or furniture or clothes or whatever. Okay. I like to think that if I have one thing I banked on my career, it's taste. And that kind of reflected in what we did as a company. And, you know, at the time I was an indie, so I had a pretty good view of both companies and watching. And I always kind of liked AEG because you guys didn't compete on our level. Like mm -hmm. you left my business alone completely. <laughs> and that was great because I didn't want anybody messing with our avenue, especially because our margins aren't big in the business and playing with a small checkbook. So, you know, as you build your business, you want to make sure that the people that you're being friends with and working with a little bit aren't coming to each at some point. You know, and you guys had a different lane than we did. And I always appreciated that. No, 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 that's totally true. And I remember that. But, you know, the other thing is when I started, because I was a manager most of my career, I became a manager's promoter. Like I knew what a manager needed to look good to their clients. Does that help when you're trying to buy tours since you lived in that world? Big time. So you wore both hats for a little while. Like with Usher, you were promoting a man, managing him simultaneously, right? Yes. Yes, I did. Seems, where does one line end and one... Con the conflict of interest? Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I had Lionel Richie and Usher while I was CEO of AG. I mean, Live. you're getting the dates, but it would seem like that might be an objection by somebody. Well, if you look at Live Nation now and, the, and Maverick and the management companies they own... Most of those acts go to Live Nation. Well, they sent the best offer. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, they, they, they would know what it is. I guess in that case, I was a, a pioneer because they're copying me. And you know what they say? They say mimicry is the sincerest form of flattery. So if you look at the Live Nation's model now with management and touring, it's kind of the same thing. But no, when I did Usher, Usher asked me to meet him. I'd always been his promoter through all of his biggest dates as he was breaking and the whole thing. And his mother, Janetta, was his manager. So I had a relationship that was pretty deep. I generally do when I'm a promoter for an act. I get to know the act pretty well without overstepping my bounds or going around a manager. You build but, a relationship. Yeah, but because I, I, I was always talent-oriented and I could speak to talent. So did Usher, Usher asked me to come to Atlanta and see him and listen to his new music. His mother was no longer his manager. His girlfriend was kind of doing the day-to-day -day grace who he married and is now divorced from. But when I went to meet him, he said, I want you to manage me. And I said, look, I have a job and I'd have to get a waiver to do this. 
and there's no way they're going to let me do this unless I can also be your tour promoter or the company can promote you. So you leveraged it. Yeah, yeah. But at market value, I said, Ush, we would never look for a discount. We pay whatever the market is, but you have to let my company do it. And he trusted me. And that's pretty much how that happened. Seems like he's not hurting for dollars. So it seemed like it probably worked out for uh, everybody. That was a big year for him. The whole OMG, that whole comeback that year. Because remember, he was gone for a while. That was really, really good for him. There's a thing in his world in particular. When I say his, I mean urban hip hop. Mm -hmm. Dancing and the stage show is almost a bigger deal than the song almost. Mm -hmm. The stage show is half of what you're coming for. And if you can't move like Usher, you're not, it doesn't matter how great that single is, you're not selling arenas out the way he was. Like you needed both. And not everybody could move like him. No, no, uh, Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's half the talent. Yeah, that was big for the live show. You're absolutely right. It kind of changed. Rock bands was a different dynamic on stage, like Led Zeppelin and the Eagles. It was a different kind of live show. But R&B, Dancing was essential because if you think of the lineage of a lot of these stars, going back to all of the groups, the Temptations, that type of thing, Ohio players, this was the lineage and they were the heirs. Usher was an heir of what came before him. Dancing was an essential element of the live performance and those steps and sync. Right, because you can go back to the Temps and Tops and see where it went to new kids over the course of the years and where that went to Backstreet and then on to the newest and greatest. So it's all connected. I can draw a straight line from Marvin Gaye to Usher. But if you think about that, Usher was, he had that work ethic where he would rehearse like a demon. I've never seen anything like it. And it was kind of instilled from him from when he was like a kid, you know, a kid star with L.A. Reid and LaFace and all that. It was great to watch him when someone has that kind of work ethic, it makes you work harder. So you left AEG and you're still active in the business. You're working with one of the hottest online hacks in the world, the billions of downloads and views, insane. Talk about your day to day. Okay, I was involved with a internet pioneer named Steve Miller and my longtime partner, Dave Loeffler, who managed Usher and Lionel Richie with me and we together, he was actually in a group that sold a couple of million records called EYC. So he's been with me for like 20 plus years. And we were starting this thing called Halogen, which was a social media monetization engine. It's an app and it's actually coming to market this year. And it's spectacular from a technology standpoint. Hmm. And then in order to do Halogen, we created a group that would have been, because we needed content that we could control before we could sell it to bigger stars and <laughs> labels and stuff like that. And we found these five kids knew each other and they were on the circuit. They were all solo stars. And one of the prerequisites that Dave and I had was that they had to have at least 70,000, 100,000 followers on the three platforms that mattered at the time, which were burgeoning Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, not Snapchat. And we got very, very lucky because we got these five kids and they were all the voices, the look, the personalities. And so after they auditioned and the whole thing, they sat down, the five of them, and I said, do you guys really know what it means to be in a group since you've all been solo artists trying to get your career started? Say so you got to be unselfish, share parts, work together. I mean, it's a different kind of thing, you know, and you have to really want to do it. And the youngest one looked at the other four and said, why don't we? And that's how the name 
why don't we happen? It was that organic. They got so big that halogen, you know, is like a small part of what they're about. They've just transcended what was the original reason for me to even do this. And when I was talking, my partner, Dave, who came out of a quote unquote boy band that was successful in its day called EYC, he and I talked about it. We looked at where the business was. There were no boy bands. One Direction had pretty much run its course, made two and a half billion dollar gross, but it run its course. We left the place open for that. Yeah. 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 And they were doing their solo things so that we felt that there was an opening for a boy band. Now, my guys, they're like my kids. They call themselves a man band, okay? <laughs> because they are a little more sophisticated right. and a little cooler. But we filled a slot and we broke them. If you look at why don't we, okay? It is the perfect example of the modern music business because we broke them without a label. Now we're with Atlantic now and Atlantic's been an incredible partner and has elevated the quality of the music and the A&R and the radio, of course, radio. But this group broke off of social media and their interaction with their fans and being able to deal and speak directly to their fan base and put music out independently. We put out five EPs in a year, 25 songs plus a Christmas song. That's an amazing amount of content. Yeah, and we keep feeding the beast. Even now, we do a song and video a month. And the one that raises its hand, like Eight Letters, which was the recent single that went top 20, when one raises its hand, we chase it at radio. But, we, but the beauty of it is we have the data and the analytics of Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, to look at the songs that are really reacting. So you know which one's the one. We know the one to go after. Let the public speak. Yeah. And then the kids are getting all these great videos and great content, and they love these kids. They have 4 million hardcore Instagram followers, and that 4 million will become 40 million with the radio hit, because then it spreads past their core fan base. But... They speak directly to those kids every time they post. And they post as Why Don't We Music, and they post individually as Jonah, Daniel, and the whole thing. It's just an amazing thing to watch. So if you're asking me what my passion is, the passion is doing this, in large part because I've done it for other managers or been a big part, was a very big part of Justin Bieber. As Scooter tells people all the time, I taught him about the live business, since that's not where he came from. And we had a huge amount of success with Bieber. And I just figured this time I'll do one for myself, <laughs> for my partners. So from the time that you were in law school and found your way to the industry to running AEG, what's the goal? Where's the future for you? Well, you know, I want to do more content. Like, why don't we? I have another kid, Eben, who are breaking off of the coattails. He tours with why don't we? Bring off the coattails. Well, you took a book from Louis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But on the content side. We just made a massive deal for him with Atlantic Records. It feels good. I really love, as I sail into my retirement years, if those are even possible for a type A Jew like me, <laughs> but I get a bigger kick for all the superstars I've worked with my whole career. I get a bigger kick at watching an act break. Something that I've always been impressed with you in particular is there's some people that are great at working a lobby. Wayne Forte, Bill Silva, mm -hmm. Rapino, people that can glide through a room and, and do it so well. You remember everyone. You were so good at remembering people's names and why you knew them. And you can watch you work a lobby that's packed and somehow, and I know you're, you know, peripheral and whatever, but like making everybody feel like they belong and finding a second and like, it's an art. I had to learn that. That wasn't a natural thing. 
I actually came from politics. I worked for a congressman named Dick Ottinger out of Westchester County, New York. And my job, when I was a young kid, was to remember and write down all the people he met so I could tell him. And it's a skill that I then employed for myself when I went into business. Because there's nothing like, I mean, Bill Clinton's the greatest at it, okay? He walks into a room, you think you're the only one he's talking to when he meets you. I have to say this, look, we're in a hardcore business, okay? And not, obviously I've been in a long time and it's done well for me, I can't complain, but it's a tough business. But I've always felt that making people feel special and to give them attention and not treat them like numbers on a pad is a really important thing because this is a relationship-driven business. And the reason I'm still here, the reason I'm in this room talking to Promoter 101 is because I've managed to keep my relationships going. I'm friends with people when I need them and when I don't need them. And I think that's really, really important. If I had to give any advice to anyone young starting in the business, it would be to be personable and also to pay attention to the people you're working with. It's uh, great advice. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really no, appreciate no, no. it. Thanks, Dan. Randy Phillips, right here on Promoter 101. Still to come on the Promoter 101 Masterclass Sessions. Hey, this is Bill Silva from Bill Silva Entertainment. Only on Promoter 101. Masterclass. Jason Zink Emporium presents, and I'm on Promoter 101. Buy a t-shirt, please. We are so thrilled to team up with the Grammys Music Cares Foundation to do a little good. And you and our listeners can help out right now by going to Promoter101.net, clicking on Merch at the top of the browser, and picking up a stylish Promoter 101 t-shirt for just a $20 donation, or an even more stylish Promoter 101 hoodie for a $50 donation. 100% of the gross donation goes to Music Cares. It's all in. Not additional shipping or handling. We take care of it all for you. Please buy a shirt and support some people in need. It's our first ever shirt, and we are very proud of it. Prism will also do a match of the first $10,000 donated to Music Cares. So get it now. You donate $20, $40 goes to Music Care. You donate $50, Music Care gets $100. You can't beat that. Write us at Steiny at Promoter101.net. Feel free to tell us what's on your mind. We'll be back this Monday at 5 p.m. on the Pacific Coast, 6 p.m. Mountain Standard, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. on the Eastern Seaboard. Great big thanks to Rich Best for co-hosting this week. 100%, Dan. Love being back here. Keep an eye out next Monday as the show will feature famed writer and critic Bob Lesset, the name that asks all the questions. We'll be answering them in an exciting change of pace. Until then, we're wishing you sold out shows for the week to come. Cheers! Don't forget to call your mom. This is Emma Banks. I work at Creative Artists Agency, and this is Promoter 101. 